to you side. Welcome to Let's Talk, a place for open conversations. First, they kill my father. A daughter of Cambodian remembers the jarring and poignant memoir written by Long Ong, recounting her childhood in the Cambodian killing fields. In 2017, it was adopted into a film directed by Angelina Jolie. Long has also written a second memoir, Lucky Child. It's about adjusting to life in the United States, and contributed screenwriting to the film Girl Rising, which was nominated for an Academy Award. She is actively working on numerous campaigns aimed to end violence against women, cease using of child soldiers. And banning landmines. As someone who knows firsthand the trauma of war, she's deeply committed to her humanitarian causes. Yet she lives with unbounded optimism and compassion. Really, really, it's a really a pleasure to be on. Well, first of all, let's begin letting everybody know where you are right now. Okay, I am. Um, Instagramming you live from Cleveland, Ohio. My very first Instagram show um, podcast ever, and I, I think this is the very first time I've ever been on Instagram. Actually, <laughs> well, you need to be on here more because your voice is so important. We need to hear your voices. And Instagram Live reaches a great audience of, of the millennials and the Gen Zs, and and they need to hear your voice because we're going to talk about all about that today. What your voice means to the community. And we know you're Cambodian. You were, you were a, a family of seven. Well, you are a family of seven. You were born in Cambodia, and you are a survivor. You were able to escape what we know as the killing ground now, um, in history. Give us a little bit of that story of your background for those that don't know you. Okay, thank you. Well, I'm actually Cambodian Chinese. So my mother's from China. My father's Cambodian, and so I'm a. Mixed of uh, both and everything else. Um, so I grew up in Cambodia. It's a small little country in Southeast Asia. And um, back when I was born, way long ago, 1970, um, <laughs> you know, which makes me 50 this year. But um, back then, Cambodia was uh, populated uh, by seven million people. When I came into the world, it was a very beautiful country, not yet known as the killing fields of Cambodia, not yet known for the genocide. And um, the Cambodia I came into was really 95% Buddhist, 90% farmers, people live off the land. And we were known for just the beautiful scenery and the fabulous food. Um, and so my Cambodia was very different. And then when I was five, the soldiers, the communist Khmer Rouge, stormed into my country and took power. And for the next three years, eight months and 21 days or 20 days, the Khmer Rouge would um, enacted a policy that they called um, the super great leap forward because Chinese great leap forward was not far enough. And um, so they enacted all these policy telling us how to live, where where to live, when to eat, when to sleep, how to wear our hair. And we were only allowed to wear black shirts and pants for the next four years. And by the end of their regime, in that almost four years, an estimated of two million Cambodians would die from starvations, 
disease, hard labor, and executions. And among the victims would be both my parents, two sisters, and 20 other relatives. And um, I was very lucky. Um, and uh, myself and four other sibling siblings survived. And eventually, we made our ways to America. Wow. Well, at, at such a tender age, did you have the comprehension the genocide situation was happening around you. What was it like at that age to try to absorb all that and know that this is, we like to use the word, new normal, right? That was your new normal. What, what was that like and how much did you actually able to, to remember and, and, and really comprehend that experience? I didn't know anything at all. I mean, I had, my Cambodia was one where I spent it with my brothers and sisters. And I mean, you're a fashion person. And I remember so clearly spying on my three brothers in their bell-bottom pants. And back in the 70s, that was all the rage. And they were obsessed with Elvis Presley music. And so they would try to grow Elvis sideburns. Like, I know you can do it because I can see you, but my brothers couldn't do it. Um, so that was my Cambodia. I went to school three times a day, six days a week studying Cambodian, Chinese, French, or English, for, um, depending on the siblings. I didn't know anything about the soldiers. And, and when they came in, I had no understanding of the war because I didn't know there was a war. My parents had kept a shelter and safe in the city as the war and the civil war was raging on in the, in the countryside. So I did not know anything when they came in and all I saw were the soldiers came in with their black shirts and black pants. They rode into the city on these muddy trucks and they were wearing big smiles and they were screaming the war was over. And I thought, oh, they are smiling. They were smiling. So that must be good. And then they start pulling out their bullhorns and they start screaming into the bullhorn saying, telling the people um, in the city where I, I was from was populated by 2 million people, they were telling us that we had to leave our homes because the Americans were coming in with their, with their bombs. And if we didn't leave, we would all be killed. And so we left. We packed what little we, we could carry. And the city of 2 million people was evacuated in 72 days. And from there, my life would become like fiction. It was surreal. All of a sudden, I went from having rights and voice and um, living with my family to living in, in villages that were more akin to labor camps, where every day consisted of only Mondays, and every Monday was a work day. And it didn't matter if you were six or 60, and you had to work. Um, and, and so all our rights, one by one, were taken away from us. Um, and all we knew was that to survive, we had to become dumb, deaf, mute, blind, invisible, and unseen just so we could have the privilege of taking that next breath. And that was how I lived my life from the time I was five to the time I was 10. And did your mom and dad, I know you lost them during this time, but while they were like, did they shelter you from this process? How were they able to parent through this? They tried as best they could, but there weren't a lot of, they, there wasn't a lot they could do. And, and I knew that they needed to protect us, but they didn't have any power or any ability to protect us. And I remember so vividly understanding this at the beginning of um, 
when the soldiers came in because we were moving, they were moving us from one village to another. And we ended up at a town square, a village square. And we had on our backs and in our backpacks, our clothes from our former lives, you know, the, the corduroy jackets and the blue jeans. And for me, it was red, my red dress. Because the Khmer Rouge came in on April 17th and Cambodian New Year's was April 14th, um, 13th, 14th and 15th. And my mother had made my um, three sisters and I identical red dresses. And so I was, and I was five. So it was the first time in my life as growing up in a Chinese Cambodian community family, we were not, girls were not raised to be seen. And not to be seen in bright red dresses, except for special occasions like New Year's. And so I remember wearing my red dress with the poofy sleeves and the poofy skirts and with red bows and ribbons in my hairs and red lipstick. And I took that red dress with me when the soldiers evacuated us. Um, that day, the soldiers poured our clothes into the square and the soldiers took a match and lit all our clothes. And I couldn't scream and I couldn't grab my back my dress, even though I wanted to. And I knew that my parents couldn't protect me. And so they stood there watching me, wanting to go and rescue my dress. And they couldn't do anything about it. And I knew I couldn't harm them. Um, and so I knew I had to take care of myself at a very long, uh, young age. And I knew my parents couldn't take care of me. That's incredible. I'm, 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 I'm listening because I'm visualizing because since you have put two books out and I have the pleasure of, of reading them and the first book called First I Kill My Father and then follows by Lucky Child and in and, and these both these books are written in such a compassionate unfiltered and first person perspective that I think it's incredibly brave and what I want to know is that what gave you that courage to, to put these experiences down in words and did you realize that these words have a greater purpose and, and help and heal so many yeah. You know, a writer writes, a published writer tries to get his or her work to publish for various different reasons. And so for me, when I first came to America, I was 10 years old and I didn't speak any English. And I know you didn't learn English or, or learn to speak it until you were 12. And, and you know, you realize that when, oh, for me, learning English and learning how to read and write English came much faster than learning to speak it, right? And like you, I can read it, and when I write it, I can edit it. But when I have to speak live, those dang S's and E's and those dang plurals and those dangs, you know, it, it was just I have a hard time with that, and so I silenced myself. I couldn't find the words to speak, and when I did try to speak, I was very afraid people would think, "Oh, you speak broken English, and therefore we can't understand you." And so I kept the journal. Um, I wrote down my feelings, my angers, my rage. I filled my I filled my journals full of all my feelings. And it would be years later when my nieces um, were born that I wanted to share the stories of their grandparents, of their aunts and uncles, of all the loved ones that they will never get the chance to meet and they never got the chance to meet. And I wanted them to know how hard their grandparents work to be here and how much they would have wanted to be here to meet them. And because I knew, like me, when they went to school and they were American born, 
but they will have friends who will speak of their aunts and uncles and grandparents and who would get birthday gifts and Christmas gifts. And I went through all of that going back to school, but I have family members. So I wanted them to not feel that. I wanted them to be able to say, well, I know my grandparents through my aunt's words. Um, and, and so that kind of gave me the, 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 the courage to put out our stories because I wanted them to be proud of their grandparents as well. I wanted their grandparents who were victims of the Khmer's genocide not to be faceless or nameless or soulless. I wanted them to be full in 3D and spiritual and alive and beautiful. Um, and once I decided to do the story for my nieces and, and my nieces and, and nephews, I thought, why not just put it all out there? And so I did. And you did. And what I love about these stories is that you don't write it from a victim's perspective. You, you write it in a celebratory way of a survivor, in a way of strength. Even at a five years old, the voice that you gave to that five-year-old little girl is the same strength you have of today. And that's, I think, it's a, it's a foreshadowing of your life. Because you know, when I read the book, I couldn't help but wonder, was this part of a process of healing for you? And were you writing this so that you can see it as a story rather than a nightmare? That's a really good point. And for me, writing was very cathartic. And it was definitely something that I wanted to do um, to get rid of the nightmares. Because when you have gone through trauma, you've gone through wars, you, you don't understand what happened to you, why it happened. And, and even though you left, like I did. Did you realize that your words would become such a healing process for so many others? And um, I decided to publish it for my niece and oh, to write the story for my niece. And then once I was done with that, I thought I put so much work into this. I might as well just release it into the world. And then I did. And um, the writing process for me is, is a great therapy. Again, as I shared with you before, English is, is a difficult language for me to learn. I actually speak Cambodian and Chinese fluently. Well, Chiu Chao Chinese, so another dialect, not Mandarin or Cantonese, but the other one. Um, and But English is, is for me, I, I learned to speak English at a much later age. And I think probably because I didn't come to America until I was 10. So I learned to read and write much quicker. And also speaking English requires certain amounts of, of confidence, of being fearless. And I was always afraid that people were going to think I speak broken English. And so therefore I didn't talk much, but I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I wrote and I read. And, um, and eventually I got to the point where I thought, you know, this writing thing is wonderful. It's, it's, it's therapy. Um, and, um, and I, I just been doing it ever since. It's, it's funny because when I first came to the United States, and I think we probably shared these same feelings that first you try to assimilate, you're trying to blend in, and you really quickly learn that you're just not going to blend in. Then you become, again, like you were saying, that you had to be invisible. So you have to live that invisible life all over again, like you did through the war. And adolescents are hard, right? Adolescents are probably hard. I was in middle America, and you were too, in, in a predominantly non-Asian community. And you do silent your, silence yourself along the way. And I'm so blessed that my personality actually saved me because I was always a very verbosious person. Even when I didn't know how to speak English, I would just speak to other people in Chinese and assume they should understand me. So you will find me at Kellogg, which is a supermarket in middle America. And I'll walk up to a white person and say, 厕所在哪里? 
They look at me like crazy. <laughs> and I would talk to them and I just yeah. said, where's the bathroom? And right. if I start using my hands to scrub, I need to go to the bathroom, they understand. So I began this idea that I want to see my own language. If you want to listen, great. If you can understand, great. If you don't, your problem, not mine. Aww. And I think that's how I kind of developed this confidence to, to want to learn English so fast because I was not a good student in Taiwan. In fact, I would probably um, have not survived in the academic world. And in fact, I know I wouldn't have because I was you know, passed on from school to school and I was the middle child syndrome and, and I was not, not encouraged to do great as you expected not to do great. So you just kind of left on the side. But when I came to America, it was a rebirth for me. It was a, a starting over the way I wanted to be. And whether or not it's broken English or whether or not it's some buoyance of energy that my parents still can figure out how to stay where I got them because they're not like that at all. But it was a survival mechanism. And when I hear about your story of writing become a therapy for you, I remember this as you were talking about it, is that I used to talk so much. I remember in 10th grade, I talked so much, nobody was listening. I remember that moment that I just thought, nobody hears me because I'm always talking. And I started keeping journals. Mm -hmm. And you're absolutely right. I go back and I still have my journals. I kept journal for 10 years, for 10 years. Everywhere I travel, I had it. And it's very interesting. I encourage you to do the same. And back then, guys, we didn't have internet and I didn't have a typewriter. So we hand wrote most of our journals, right? <laughs> Um, I went back and studied my own handwriting. And through that handwriting, I can see when I was struggling and when I was coming out of my struggle and when I was able to say, I am done with this journey and I can stop writing. At least when I was writing, the subject matter can change. And I wonder if you went through that because I'm so fascinated by when you realize your voice has power because that's what it is, right? Because we silence ourselves because we think we're powerless. I want to know when you realize that your voice has so much power. Mm. And one also for you, when you were talking about, I was just wondering how much is it, was it also has to do with you being a man and me being a girl, a woman? Because I was raised in a culture where girls were, seldom seen and rarely heard. And so even when I was learning to speak English, I waited until my words were perfect because this is our second chance, our second life in America as a refugee. And I waited until each of my sentences were perfectly formed and each of my thoughts were brilliant. And so I just, but in on the pages of my journals, I could just scroll whatever I wanted. To, I didn't have to wait for perfection to speak before I would speak. And so and um, it has. It, I think it finally got to the point where I just thought, um, I, you know, I I went after college. I went and, and uh, got a degree in political science, and then went to work at a domestic violence shelter. And in speaking with women and their and helping them through getting the restraining orders and helping them getting out of abusive relationship. And my 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 job was as the community educator. And so I was to go out and speak to doctors and lawyers and judges and police officers and to train them on domestic violence laws and compliance of the law. And it dawned on me that I knew my stuff. I could do the research. I could study. I could give a presentations. And you know what? It wasn't about me. I knew I, I, I actually came into my power when I realized that it wasn't about me. 
that it's maybe my voice is just a tool that I'm using to talk about issues I care about. And it's, it's even my story isn't about me. Even like none of it is, is about us as an individual is about all of us together. And all of us together is very eloquent, very articulate because our story has grace and dignity and beauty and spirituality. And so even if our words are not perfect, our story, our story, stories are and story is. And, um, and so since then, since I was working with women, I decided that, that for me, it's, it's just the voice. And so I do not need to be ashamed of it. I, in anything else, the fact that I can use it, I could celebrate it and value it for what it is. It's not perfect, but it is mine and it is a voice. You know, I, I love hearing that. I have goosebumps because I, I, I went through that struggle and I still go through that struggle. And as I sit here in front of you on the, on the wall says, let's talk. And for the 117th guest that you are, but every single guest, I sit there and before I speak, I would have to think, is it past tense, present tense? Do I put a pearl? Is it S or no S? I still go through that. And, and as, until what you said perfectly is that when I stop shaming my own words and accepting the message, more importantly than the words, it's when I was able to be more confident and be able to sit here and my guests like you who speak perfect English and eloquent and intellectually that I can't feel comfortable be at the even playing field and a conversation field with. But it took me a while. And, and as you said, that writing's a therapy, talking for me has become my therapy. And because we, I need, I'm a visual person. I need the reflections of you. I need to see your eyebrows move for acceptance. I need to see the frown, meaning that I need to do better. And that's how I grow. And so I appreciate you being here today, being that reflection and help me grow. Yeah. I want to dive into a second part of the conversation here is that you have an incredible relationship with Angelina Jolie. And the book you wrote, First I Killed My Father, has since made into a film on Netflix. So for those of you guys who are watching, please Go to Netflix, watch a film. It's visually stunning and beautiful. It's heartfelt and it's real to you. It is your real. I want to talk about how did this relationship blossom with Angelina Jolie and how did the film project begin? Yeah. Well, so she and I met close to 20 years ago. And at that time, I was working in Washington, D.C. as the spokesperson for the campaign to ban landmines, for the campaign for a landmine-free world. And I was traveling back and forth a lot to Cambodia. And before I even sat down to turn my journals into the, to a book, I've actually visited Cambodia seven times because I wanted the body memories. I wanted to go there and relive it and to, to just to, to, in order to write the story. And um so I was doing a lot of work in Cambodia with the landmines campaign. And um, when my book came out, it was published in 2000. Kim, Angie, Angie was in, um, she was in Cambodia, I think the year before shooting the movie Tomb Raiders. And then um, she picked up a copy of my book um, and read it and called me up, called me up on the phone, not, not as an assistant or anything, just the, the voice on the phone. Um, 
And unfortunately, I didn't recognize the voice because I didn't really know who she was. <laughs> you know, I'm a human rights activist. I didn't really, I, I don't play video games. And you know, you see how good I am with technology, which is zero. And so I had no idea. Um, but even though I didn't know her as an, as an actor, I knew her as a humanitarian. So I knew she was already doing really great work for the UN and refugee issues. And, um, and, um, and we connected on that day and we've been friends for close to 20 years. And was the, the book project started 20 years ago? Did you start letting that season begin to, to foster this possibility? We talked about it many years ago. And um, I mean, we were young women in our 20s and just talking about life and life's plans. And, and um, so we, we spoke of it, but we really didn't pursue it. She, she was busy with life. I got busy with life and work. And, and I don't know if you know this, but my husband and I in Cleveland were owners of three restaurants and two microbreweries. And so we, we both got really busy. And and then a couple of years ago, she called me up and she said, um, Mad is now 14 and he wants to do the film. And we always thought that if we were going to do a film about Cambodia, we wanted to it, to be a family project. And he was ready and was I ready? And I said, let's do it. And um, so then he, he Mad's the executive producer, as, as I am, as I am too. And Angie produced it and Angie and I wrote the script and we went all to Cambodia and filmed the, the movie together. It was such a great experience. We had to spend four months in Cambodia together making this film that means so much to us. And to work in Cambodia with all Cambodian casts um, and 20,000 extras and Cambodian talents and, and um, musicians and um, makeup artists and costume designer and to be in a place where we made the movie um, in Khmer. Um, and so for me, it was a dream come true. It was beyond anything I could have wanted not to just make the film because for me that was fun but if it happened it was going to be happy it was going to, I was going to do it with the right person and the right team a woman I trust whose heart I trust whose track record for human rights and for humanitarian work I trust and I also trust her as a mother and as a woman and as a friend and there was really you couldn't dream up a better scenario for for it to happen well, I love you said that it's based on trust of your relationship, friendship. And and I want to share this story for our viewers that we did work together about three years ago. And it was for a photo shoot promotion for this particular film we're talking about, First They Kill My Father for Netflix. And and I want to share this with you because, it you know, it, as a photographer, we've all bucket list of talent that we want to work with. For me, it's the Obama family. I have to be able to photograph them. I got to photograph the Clintons, but I have yet photographed the Obamas. And there's always Oprah, who is on that top of my list. And then there's Angelina Jolie. And my agent asked when she called me and said, listen, there's a small shoe. It's not a big fashion shoe. It's not a big, huge magazine. It's industry magazine. But the talent's incredible. You're going to want to work with her. And she said, you want to work with Angelina Jolie? Of course, I was like, yes. And strategically, my agent did not tell me you would be there. And that was done because as a fashion photographer, at times we can be very elitist. Many times we can be very elitist. And he wanted to ensure that I would show up for the shoot to work and develop a relationship with her so perhaps I can work with her in the future. But you will also be there because you're part of the creation of the team for the film. I know very little about the photo shoot until I show up that day because there's a lot of just back and forth with days just available, everybody's available. But when I showed up, that's when my agent actually said, well, before 
before you get on set, I need you to know this is actually celebrating a film they're doing and they're together. And Long Ahn's going to be there. And I had no opportunity to read about you then. Um, I'm not an activist in, in my everyday life. I did not celebrate Asian American culture as I am now trying to make amends and do better. So I didn't know you. And so my day was going to be, oh, I'm going to spend a day with Angela. I'm going to be with Angelina. I'm going to be in true I'm going to be, you know, I, I, it's cool. It's fine. Whoever this woman is, I'm, I, it's fine. It doesn't matter. I'll take a couple of pictures of her and she can go. And I'm going to shoot Angelina. That was really my attitude. And I'll be honest. I was like, okay, this is what I'm going to do. And then you walked in. When, when then Angelina walked in, she introduced you first to me. Then she introduced herself, which I think is always very funny when an A-list celebrity introduces himself to me. <laughs> I'm like, yeah, like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> but the moment she said your name, introduced you to me, I could tell immediately right away. It was not a day for me to be with her. It was a, a day that I'm going to be with you. I found an instant connection with you. I know when Angelina was doing her hair and makeup, you and I sat down, just being to discuss why you were there. I was so fascinated by you, by the strength that you have. And as an Asian American, I couldn't be more proud to know that there's going to be a film, a film that is made with Asian American team of cast and also Asian authentic cast that's going to be featured in America. And this is pre, let's talk about this. This is pre crazy rich Asian, right? This is pre hashtag. Let's do a trend about using Asian team to tell a story, right? This is way before that. And what that proved to me at that time was that you guys didn't make a film because it was the right thing to do at the time. You made a film because it was the right thing to do, period. Back to the day of the shoot, I didn't spend a lot of time with Angelina. I, in fact, at a certain part of the day, I looked at my assistant and my producer and I said, well, today is really, it's, I hope she remembers me. I hope when this day is done that she'll remember me. And I remember we were shooting at one point, I got in the middle, we shot a portrait together, which I love. And then the day was done and, and we all went our separate ways. As you left first, I gave you a hug goodbye. I said, I would love to eat your food in Boston. She came up to me. Angelina took my hand and said, thank you for today. And I was so puzzled because I did nothing that day to me. I didn't really direct hair and makeup. I didn't tell her what to do. I didn't pose her like I do with models and people who watch me on TV know that I'm very tactile. I go in there and do all this stuff. I didn't do any of, of the youth side thing, right? But here she's thanking me. So I was bolting enough to say, why are you thanking me? Well, I didn't do anything. Um, do you even remember my name still after today? And she looked at me and she said, you took care of Olang. You took care of her. And that's what today was about. And I said that I was still a little tear in my eyes because I learned so much that day who she was and what humanity meant. Because I have worked with so many A-list celebrities that they are the light of the room and you give them the light and you stay in the shadow. But what she did for you and for me that day it speaks so loud for me as, as someone who's being celebrated by, I hate to say it this way, but celebrated by a renowned Caucasian woman who can have any voice where she wants to put to, to amplify others. She put it toward the Asian Americans. And I know she chose me to shoot that day because she had to approve the photographer. It's because I'm Asian American. And that is so important to me because we don't get those chances. We get to look in the mirror and say, I'm here because I'm Asian American. We wonder we can ever be there because we're Asian American, but 
that day validated the fact that I am Asian American and I'm proud to be there. And I couldn't be more proud to have met you that day. So I want to say thank you for that day. Well, thank you. That's sweet. I've never heard that story until you told me. And she, she's a friend. And um, I have to, I mean, for me, it's Angie's kind to everybody in and she's she she had my back and i as as you i remember i i don't normally i i don't do photos and photo shoots and you were so kind to me you really made me feel comfortable you shot um some of you shot my favorite photo headshot of of me that you so kind and graciously allowed me to use and put on my website so i really really love it thank you so much well, thank you for that. I, I will always remember that day and I, I remember our first connection. So as we're all going through this crazy time right now and being a restaurant owner, you're getting the impact and full force. You know, we, we were going through an invisible war. You went through a physical war, you know, and then we have a political war going at the same time. And, it, it, and, it's, and then it bursts of a physical wars in different cities and then we have natural war that's happening with fires in California and, and hurricanes in the South. You know, from someone who's a true survivor and someone who inspires so many twelve viewers out there, teach us how to fight this war we're going through. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if, if I, there's anything I can teach, but I hope I could um, just share a little bit more. I mean, for me, what it means to be there together. Because in the physical war, the war I went through, and for some of us in America, this is, this is also um, what's going on in their lives. But for me in Cambodia, you were in constant danger of bombs falling over you. You were in constant danger of soldiers coming by and taking away your loved ones, your parents, your brother, your sister. Constant danger of starvation and disease and hard labor and execution. And so, and so you live your life in fear, in fear that are you going to be the next one? And it breaks my heart that so many of our country citizens are experiencing these kind of fears in their daily lives. And, and so that, that is very emotionally, very traumatic and spiritually tra traumatic. There, there's such a difference between the physical war to me and the invisible war that's going on with you know, our difficult times and what's going on in our world. Um, and, and, and it's that in the physical war, there was also a clear separation of us versus them. The people versus the soldiers, good versus evil, um, and um, loser versus winners in terms of at some point the war was going to end and somebody was going to be declared the victor and somebody was going to be declared the non-victor of, of the, the situations. Whether and, and, and in America, it's, it's really sad because that is also the same things that we're going through. There's an us versus them and there shouldn't be. This invisible war that we are all combating together does not see the us versus them. You know, this invisible war that we are all going through together does not care whether you are a friend or a foe or a brother or a sister or my enemy or a writer or a singer or a musician or, or you say this invisible war will attack all of us. And therefore it would be, it would be to our benefit for all of us to be there for us, for there to be a we for uh, we, a, a one for all, all for one, because that is the only way we are going to beat this.
We are not going to beat this like a physical war where it is us versus them because our enemy is not recognizing that. Um, and so we need to do the mask wearing. We need to do the taking care of each other. We need to do the support of each other and to, to be a voice and to be a help and to be and to extend your helping hand because I've been in a physical war. I've been in a war where you where where there's a clear target on you. This invisible war, we are all the targets. And so in order for us to make ourselves not targets, we need to be invisible to it. And that is pr by protecting ourselves and protecting each other. We need to make our us invisible. And so that no, so that we can be safe. I love this, that we have to protect ourselves. And we see that. We, we see that and collectively protect ourselves, right? Because we begin to see that in the social injustice of what we're fighting for. We're fighting for equality, for for the minority, for the marginalized. And, and as an Asian American, I, going through this invisible war, it's the first time I had to recognize my own personal war. Right, my all, all personal journey is that what does it mean to be the entity that I live in? Have I benefited from it being an Asian American? And what do I need to do now, knowing that I'm one of the few privileged ones, have platforms, and how do I use that voice to to amplify for good? And it's a daily struggle for me still. I'm still learning. I'm learning how to be an activist like you. I'm learning that what it means to have a platform and what do I talk about that will actually make a significant difference in our world? And how do we go about making sure that for the minority group, for the Asian American, for the black community, that there is always seats at the table. And, and for me, it's not a single seat at the table, right? It's about having multiple seats at the table. And this is something that's really close to my heart because, you know, growing up, what we want is to be able to see reflections of ourselves on television and media represent who we are. And that's, that's why I think the film that you made is so significant for us to look at. And I don't want to get too political about Disney, but, you know, I appreciate Mulan for its visual effects, but I don't appreciate the fact that the whole entire crew was majority Caucasians. So we put Asian in front of the camera, so we've clicked that off, but the team that we hired to produce the film still Americans. That bothers me. And not because that there should be all Asian crew from beginning to end, but why isn't organically inclusive? And I feel like this invisible war is really bringing out the justice that we need and teaching us what it means if you want a voice at the table and, and what it means that there should not be only one seat at the table, there are multiple seats, even so much so you can have two Asian people on one show. No. Network people, <laughs> you know, why is that? You can just check off a, well, one black lead. I mean, did you see the Oscars rule now that what you have to get nominated for being an Oscar? And, and I read the entire thing and I laughed. I go, wow, how significant this moment, but let's make sure there's loopholes. Let's make sure that we can tie all the minorities in the background and we can still get nominated for the Oscars because I think the, this war is going to go for a long time, this political war and this, injustice and finding the even playing field work well it's going to go for a while but but you're absolutely right if we don't start protecting each other and treat each other as equals along the way we're all going to lose this war and i think it's also very important um I, I mean, first of all, I want to commend you for doing this. I think you are a natural and you are doing such a great job. And I, I've listened to a lot of the, of, of your um, episodes. And what's, what's wonderful about you and how you're doing it is that you are doing it 
as authentically you. You're not anybody else. You are you. You are funny. You are intelligent. You ask questions. You go on and you woke. And, and what's really wonderful is that I think for Asian Americans that we are, the, the for me anyway, and my, my friends, we have this pressure of wanting to be so well thought of and, and spoken that we wait and wait and wait for that moment before we speak up. And we cannot do that anymore. The waiting is over. It is the time is now. We got to speak up for everything, not just um, if you want to see equalities um, in, in our world. You got to speak up. You have the power. You have the voice. And the Asian minorities, we were often told we are not we don't have that voice. And if we are going to use that voice, it had better be perfect and well thought out and 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 just be supported by five PhDs to go with it. But that your experience, your value, your life, your work, I mean, it, it's just, it's all valuable and credible. Um, and so I think, I think you're right. We have to speak up and the time is now. There is no more time to wait. How do we go about doing that? How do you see that we go about doing that? Yeah. But the, I think one um, shows like this and, and, and us speaking up and I, I, there are times when I'm on a stage and, and I, I, for a while I used to apologize to people before I get on and, and say, you know, I'm sorry. English is not my first language. It is my fourth language. And, um, and I hope you can understand me. And then I thought, um, I'm not going to say that anymore because English is my fourth language. And if you're going to have issue with it, we can talk about this in Cambodian or Chinese. And um, and then we'll see how well we understand each other. I am not going to be um, judged. I'm not going to be afraid of, of being judged. I'm not going to be afraid of my my English because you know what? Even if I mess up a few eds and s's, my English is not broken, and my story is not broken. And and it's and there are these people called editors who are really wonderful, <laughs> you know? And so I can write off stuff and write books and I send it off to my editors and you know what? They'll fix it all up for me. You know, I'll, I'll get most of it. So, um, and I think we, we just cannot be, we, we have to let go of that shame and we have to own our voice and our colors and our vibrancy. And I love that being, um, of, you know, speaking other languages that my, my writing is a lot more, um, descriptive because I can now in the, 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 the word in, in Chinese for marriage is two happy characters together. And a marriage is double happiness. Being able to write about that. How cool is that? First of all, how cool is that to also get your brain to think about language and words in such a way where it is not a shame, but it is a pride. It is pride that my language is so, and if I have three languages up here, I've got three times the way um, and the descriptions to describe my life experience. So we got to be able to have pride in all our experience in our language and also our, our, our ability to move into different places and different life. Um, and so I think it just, we just do it. No shame, only pride. And, and now that we know that we're coming into November 3rd, it's just right around the corner, that the, the Asian communities are the fastest growing community that has the power to make that difference. And you have been actively out there 
with Champion for Human Rights at the same time making awareness about voting. Let's share that with us. I have always been a voter. When, when I became a U.S. citizen at age 18, I couldn't wait to get to vote. How amazing. I don't know if, and I do think that a lot of Americans take this power for granted because voting is not only our right, it is our power. It is our superpower. So few people in the world, few citizens in other parts of the world have this ability to go out and vote and change and make a change. And, and every four years, you vote for a president. Every two or six years, you vote for a Senate or a representative. Great power. Exercise it. Change. Make the change. However, that is not only it as far as this voting power is concerned. We in America also have the ability to vote with our dollars, to vote with our voice, to vote with our support, to vote with what we buy, to vote with what we see, to vote with what who we speak to, and to vote with, you know, everything, everywhere, to vote to just today, you know, I'm going to buy, you know, for me, every time I buy food, I want to make sure I'm buying from people I want to support. And it's just a little consciousness, and there's no time in our world that is easier than right now. It, seems very confusing that's why you connect to each other and you get the information i you know i know people i know programs and then we we share but i make sure i remember back in the 80s do you remember kelly lebrock um the the model who um, did the commercial for like i think brett's hair shampoo and she was like flipping her hair don't hate me because i'm beautiful and um, and I remember I wanted hair like her, so I would buy the shampoo. And then I found out that she was abused by um, um, she was abused by her husband, whose name I won't mention because I don't want to be political. I stopped watching his movies because I was not going to support him with back then four dollar movie tickets so that he can go off and be somebody who um, is not kind and gentle. So you can do this. I actually am very conscious. We need to live life consciously. We need to live life as if we have power because we do. We need to live life as if we can make a difference because we actually can. And we need to make life, live life that we have freedom of voice, freedom of strength, freedom to connect, freedom to heal and support each other because we can do all these things. And yes, there is darkness and there are wars and there are fears, but ultimately there is also power to make a difference. And it is within all of us to do that and, and to be that. Well, thank you so much for that. We'll end on that note because I could not anything that could make that notion across better. I want to thank you for your time and most importantly, I want to thank you for your vote today to give me the confidence to be here to speak to you and be able to share our story together. I think our conversation just begun. You know, we will see each other again, we'll talk again and I can't wait for the day that we get to cook together and eat together again. But in the meantime, thank you again for your survival stories and thank you for celebrating Asian Americans. So nice to be with you and everybody out there. Please take care, stay safe, and you too. Long, thank you for your voice. Thank you so much for your profound courage and for sharing your incredible, inspiring story. Thank you to all my listeners for your constant support. 
Please subscribe to this podcast for more open conversations. You can visit our website at letstalkwithusite.com and follow me on Instagram at usite88 for updates. Let's Talk is a production of 88 Faces. I'm your host, Usai. Our director, Luis Jaime. And writer, editor, and producer, Trevor Sorenjian. Thank you for this conversation.